Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Just a real quick couple of pieces of housekeeping as we dive in. Now we're in the second week of a series in First and Second Kings. If you got your Bible, you can go to First Kings chapter one. We're going to be there. We're going to look at the first four chapters of uh, of First Kings today together, which is the the handover or handoff of the kingdom from David to Solomon. These two kings, uh, two of the first kings in the reign of a, in the life of the nation of Israel. So. As you're turning there, a couple pieces of housekeeping, as I said. So number one, I just want to remind you all that uh, if you're a member here at the church, uh, we have a congregational meeting. We do it twice a year. We bring new members into the body and they kind of reflect on the months ahead of us. So I want to invite you and remind you to reserve that space on your schedule next Sunday night. So a week from today uh, in the evening, I think 6 p.m. Don't quote me. Check the website on that, but I believe that's right. Uh, So we'll be together uh, attending to business together. So we'd love for you to be there in particular to welcome new members into our body. We've got a lot of new folks that are joining us. We'd love for you to welcome them in with us. So that's number one. Number two, also reminding you of Baptism Sunday, which comes after that, last weekend of February. And I know Dan said this last week, uh, but I wanna remind you again, baptism is this beautiful uh, ordinance that we practice together as a demonstration of the salvation that we've received in Christ Jesus. And so if you're a believer, you haven't been baptized, I just would invite you to go before the Lord and let him speak into your heart and your mind. Uh, It's one of those things that Christ has invited us into, and we wanna partake of that together. Dan said it but it probably bears repeating. We will have an indoor baptism, not an outdoor baptism uh, in February. So you can join us in that. And then I'll just say too, that I would anticipate every week, I know that some of you who join us are not followers of Jesus. And I wanna invite you today to really listen to God's word because I believe he's inviting you into relationship with him. And we see this beautiful pattern in scripture where people come to faith and then immediately are baptized. It's just like an immediate thing so often in scripture. And so my assumption is that in these weeks leading up to baptism where we plan to celebrate that God might be inviting you and saying, hey, you need to come to me. You need to hear what I have to give to you and the life that you can have in me. And so I wanna just just listen to the prompting of God in that. And at the end of our service today, we have folks every week that are down here to pray with anyone that has a need, but also in particular to talk to those of you who know that you need to give your life to Christ uh, and turn to him. So just wanna invite you to be, tune your ear in, not just to me, but to the spirit of God who would be speaking to you and calling you and inviting you. So just hear that. Really, really pay attention to that. And the last thing uh, that I'll mention by way of housekeeping is uh, for church family members, again, we're a little behind where we'd love to be budgetarily, and so I just wanna invite you to hear that, know that that's the reality, and be praying about your regular pattern of giving. Uh, Let the Lord lead you in that. So I just wanna encourage you to continue to practice that generosity as God leads you to, all right? I just wanna make you aware that we're just a little bit behind where we sense God would, uh, where we'd love to be in terms of our annual giving, all right? So let me pray again. And then let's go to God's word, all right? First Kings and Second Kings is our series now. So Lord, we yield ourselves before you and your word, and we ask you to lead us. We ask you to bring your word to bear upon us. And Lord, I would particularly ask you to do that in a way that goes beyond what any human words can do. Just beyond my power, my ability, my wisdom to teach. Offer those things to you, but ask that you would um, go far beyond them. Let the power of your word come to bear upon us. And we thank you that it is God-breathed without error. And so we know that it has for us what we need today. And we pray that you would help us to yield before it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
All right, friends. Well, I think I have shared with you uh, this picture before, or at least this story before. I lived in Chicago for a few years when I went to school and then took Amanda back a few years after we'd been married, uh, maybe even in the first year of our marriage. And we went back to what used to be called the Sears Tower, is now called the Willis Tower. And has anyone ever gone to the sky deck on the Willis Tower in Chicago? Anybody been there? All right, a handful of you. Did you step out on the glass? Has anyone ever done something like this, like the Grand Canyon? Here's what the Willis Tower sky deck looks like if you need a visual. So that is incredibly frightening, all right? And I'm not afraid of heights. So I'm not a person who has real difficulty with heights. I'm usually happy to go to the edge of whatever uh, to my wife's great fear, usually. Like, I will stand at the edge and just be like, this is great. And she's like, you're an idiot, back up, all right? So took her to this, to the Willis Tower sky deck. Now, I will say that I talked a big game before going out there because I, I said to myself, like, I'm not afraid of heights. I mean, come on, this is like a perfectly engineered box. All is going to be well. But I'll tell you, when you're hundreds of stories in the air, it is one thing to say, this is no big deal. I will walk out there and stand on that glass. It is an entirely different thing to do that. And here's the interesting thing. If you've ever done something like this where you step out and you see that the floor is made out of what? Glass. I don't know about you, but stepping on glass is not usually a thing that you wanna do, right? Especially when hundreds of stories of fall is below you. And so when you get up there, I think this is really ironic because you kind of step out and my knees buckled when I went to step out and then I proceeded to crouch in the box. <laughs> like that was gonna save me if the floor gave way. It's really, it's not sensical, but that's, I'm like, ah, and it held, praise God, all right? That's why I'm here today. As we turn to 1 Kings, the first four chapters, one of the things that's gonna, that's gonna run, and Dan talked about this, there's this promise that God had made to David in 2 Samuel chapter seven. And he made this promise to him that he'd always have one of his sons on the throne, reigning forever. And that promise then runs throughout 1 and 2 Kings. And in particular, as David hands off the throne to Solomon, we're gonna see that that promise is really what is undergirding our entire four chapters today that we're looking at. How do they live in light of that promise? Now, here's the interesting thing. Just like stepping out onto the skybox, it's one thing to, to sort of say, I trust that that will hold me. And it's an entirely different thing to actually step out and put our weight on that box. I wonder for us, how many of us would vocalize, I trust that God's promises to me, all the promises that he's made in his word to me are true. I trust that they're true. But it's an entirely different thing to put the weight of your whole life on them. See, it's one thing to say, I trust God's promises are true, but it's another thing to say, I'm gonna live and make choices and speak words and step out to do things that are risky because I believe those promises are true. You know what I mean? And as we're gonna see with David and Solomon, it's, a, it's one thing to say, yes, this promise is good. It's another thing to believe. And friends, I want you to hear me when I say this. I really want you to consider how often the choices you make in your life, I'm considering the, the choices that I make in mine, how often they are not born out of a belief that God's promises are actually true for me. I mean, listen, 2 Peter chapter one has this beautiful description to us when it says that through his glory and excellence, Jesus has granted to us his precious and very great promises. And then it says through them, through those promises, we have become partakers of the divine nature. 
Do you see what that's saying? That, that in itself is a promise about his promises. He said, all the promises that he's made you, when you believe them, that's how you become like him. You become like him through believing that all those promises are good. Promises to justify you. Romans chapter five, verse one says, therefore, having been justified through faith, we have peace with God. And then it goes on to say, and it's this beautiful, beautiful description of what it means to live. Like put the full weight of your life on those promises. Then not only that, our suffering takes on meaning because it produces hope and endurance and character so that when we put the full weight of our, our life and make all of our choices believing that we have been justified and therefore have peace with God and therefore even suffering produces good things, how can that be? That that's what it looks like when we put the full weight of our life's choices on the reality of his promises. He's promised that he will bring to completion the good work that he's begun in you. He's promised that you are his son or his daughter if you are in Christ Jesus, and that will never change. He has promised that he will hold you and that no one, no one can take you out of his hand. He has promised in John chapter six that all that God the Father brings to him he will have, they will come. And then he says, and I will not turn any one of them away. I will receive everyone. In other words, you will never come to Jesus as God the Father draws you and find that Jesus goes, no, I won't have you. He says, no, I receive you because the Father has drawn you and I will not turn away anyone whom the Father draws to me. These are good promises, yes? How about Romans chapter eight? No one can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. No one, not anything, not trial, tribulation, no distress, no sword, no pain, no sorrow, no agony, no disease, no sickness. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. Now listen, we say all these things and I get up here and I get all whipped up and I'm like, yeah. And you all say, yes. And then we go out and we make choices like what we just heard is not true at all. Here's the evidence. We go into relationships and instead of being vulnerable and trusting and when I'm wrong, asking for forgiveness, I defend myself and I protect myself and I hide myself. Why? Because I don't really believe that I'm God's son and that he's enough. And so instead of, forgiveness is the easiest example. If I really believe the promises of God, asking for forgiveness should be the easiest thing in the world. If I really believe that he forgives me, that he receives me, that he loves me, that I'm his son, then when I sin, I should go to him in confession and say, forgive me, God, I've sinned. And then I should go directly to the person I've sinned against and say, would you forgive me? I have sinned. And you know why I don't do that? Because I'm afraid that they might not. Because I'm afraid that something's gonna happen that I don't like. But when I know that the promises of God are good, that they hold fast, then I can go and seek forgiveness. And it's no longer scary. You with me? Does that make sense? These chapters are all about putting the full weight of our lives on the promises of God and how they're given to us in Jesus. Now, that may not be apparent at first, all right? But I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk you through. Now, listen, we're gonna cover a lot of stories today. So it's story time with Trent, all right? 
And we're going to walk through these stories. And as we walk through them, I just want to help you illuminate this one big idea. If you were going to state in these four chapters, one great theme running through them, it would just simply be this. It's a really simple one. God keeps all of his promises. And everything we're going to see comes underneath that. God keeps all of his promises, right? Just like that glass case. You can step out on it and trust that it's going to hold. Now, here's the interesting thing. Recognize this, even as we talk about this, because I don't want to give a false analogy here, right? You might think by that analogy, it's like, I can either trust God's promises and stand on the glass, or I can back up into this really safe place. No, no, no. You are putting the full weight of your life on some glass box. It's either him or it's your own wisdom, your own strength, your own money, something. And I promise you, those don't hold. That glass bottom falls out every time. So you are putting the weight of your life somewhere. So don't, don't mistake from that analogy that you're like, no, no, I'm standing back in the building safely. You're not. You are putting your weight somewhere. The only question is whether it's on God's promises or whether it's on something else. So recognize that. Now, as we come to the text today and we see that God keeps his promises, we're gonna see three other sort of three realities related to that, okay? So here they are. Number one is that God keeps his promises, but we don't tell him how to keep those promises. Have you ever sort of been like, hey God, you've, you've placed your call upon my life, you've called me your own, and now what I'd like to tell you is how my life should be spent. And he said, no, <laughs> I'm gonna tell you how I'm gonna keep my promises. You've been there before? So we're gonna see that. God tells us how those promises will be kept and <laughs> the timing in which they will be kept. Some, how many, have you ever been like, God, come on. Can we move it along a little bit? And he's saying, no, 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 no. I declare the timing of these things. The second thing we're gonna see is that God keeps his promises and we don't need to help him keep those promises by doing things we shouldn't do. Sometimes what happens to us is we say, okay, God has all these good things for me. I know he wants me to walk in these, you know, sort of good things and in this call upon my life that's the result of these promises, right? Like he's called me to this sort of work, this, these good works that he's prepared in advance for me to do, Ephesians 2.10, right? And I wanna walk in those. And in order to walk in those, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, I'm gonna cheat a little bit. I'm gonna cut some corners a little bit. I'm gonna operate without integrity. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go this way or that way. And friends, God keeps his promises and he does not need you to cut corners so that the ends justify the means. With God, the ends never justify the means when the means are unrighteous. All God's good work is done in God's good way. And the third thing that we're gonna see is that he gives us whatever we need to walk in his promises. So when we receive his promises, then that comes with callings and activity in our lives. And as that happens, the thing I want you to see is as he's doing it, he will never, ever call you into some work underneath those promises as a result of those promises and not give you what you need to live them out. He will provide for you. And we're gonna see that in the story of Solomon today. All right, so let's, let's tackle those one at a time, all right? So I said that the first one is that we don't tell God how to keep his promises. Let's look at the story and see how that comes forward for us. So 1 Kings chapter one. Oh, actually, sorry, I need to back up. I need to back up. In 2 Samuel chapter seven, and I won't even read it to you. I'm just gonna tell it to you. In, in 2 Samuel chapter seven, the promise that God makes is to David. And Dan referenced this last week as he did a great job of kind of giving us an introduction. But let's remember it because this is the promise that's gonna run through the whole book, all right? He says to David, he appears to David and he says, 
I am going to put one of your sons on the throne and he's gonna reign there forever. And in fact, he makes it in a very unconditional way. He says, even when that son fails to obey, when he does evil, I'll discipline him, but I will keep your son on the throne and that throne will be established forever. Now, this is a beautiful picture of prophecy and how it works in the Old Testament because he's both saying something that's conditional and unconditional, which we're gonna get to in a moment. In one sense, he's talking about Solomon who's gonna build the temple and he's gonna be disciplined because he's gonna have sin. But in another sense, he's saying that there's gonna be this ruler who's gonna reign forever. Can any of David's descendants rule forever on the throne? No, because they're human and they will die. So we know that that promise is not just about whoever's coming right after David. It's about one coming much further down the line who will reign forever. I bet you can guess who it is. We're gonna come to that, all right? So that promise then is undergirding everything that we're gonna see throughout this entire set of two books. Now listen, so here's what we see in 1 Kings. Now, what's happening is David has grown old. And he's grown ineffectual in terms of he's physically, his body's not working uh, the way it used to. His mind might not be as sharp as it used to. He's laid up in bed uh, and unable to, to operate the way that, you know, a, a young king would operate. And so we come to the story now. Here's what's happening. First Kings chapter one, verses five through eight. Just a couple of verses. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father, that's David, had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah and with Abiathar the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shimei and Ray and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. All right, pause right there. Some great names. If you're pregnant, please consider naming your kids one of those awesome names. <laughs> Go with Benaiah. Actually, don't do Benaiah. He's just, you know what? He's the hatchet man. That's his whole job. He kills people throughout the entire book. Not a great name for your kid. So all these interesting names, all these interesting characters. Here's what's happening. Adonijah is the oldest remaining son of David. Absalom had rebelled against David and as a result been killed in battle while he was trying to take over the throne. Several years have passed. David's been back on the throne. He's grown old and weak and Adonijah, his oldest remaining son, knows the promise of 2 Samuel chapter seven. God has promised to put one of my father's sons on the throne. My father's still alive. God has not spoken to me that I am that son, but what am I gonna do? I'm going to try to take the throne. There's a couple indicators in the text that like should be alarm bells going off for us. Like if you were just trying to read the story of the Old Testament from beginning to end, one of the things that you would have read about Absalom when he tried to take over for David and overthrow David from the throne is that Absalom was called an exceedingly handsome man. And we find that repeated about Adonijah. In other words, he's not God's kind of man. He's Absalom. He's an Absalom kind of man. That's who Adonijah is. He's the best looking. One of my favorite descriptions of Absalom in the Old Testament is that the scriptures literally tell us how much his hair weighed when he got it cut. He had great hair. Therefore, he must be a great king. So there's this sort of sense of like, he's the kind of ruler the world would love. Adonijah knows it. He's a handsome man. And he's going to put himself on the throne. Now, had God said to Adonijah, you will be king? No. 
Had David said to Adonijah, you will be king? No. Adonijah says, I know this promise that God has made, and I am going to tell God how that promise will be kept. That's what Adonijah is doing. That's the first lesson we see in 1 Kings chapter 1, is that there's a promise, but God is the one who determines how that promise is kept. All of 1 Kings chapter 1 is really about Adonijah saying, I will be king, and God saying, not so fast. You will not be. Now, here's another interesting thing there, just a little, not a side note so much, but a reality. When we go through scripture, we often, we should probably put to death the idea of talking about the heroes of the faith. There's only one hero of the faith, really and truly. Even the best, David, by God's mercy, will continue to be referred to as the king par excellence. Every king after this will be, if they're praised, they're praised as one who walked in the ways of David. So David is praised by God on many fronts, and yet David was deeply flawed. And one of the things we see here at the end of his life is that David is absentee as a father, and he's absent as a king. He's laid up in bed, he doesn't know what's going on, and he hasn't declared a successor. That's a failure as a leader. He's created a vacuum of leadership, and whenever there's a vacuum of leadership, someone who doesn't belong in that vacuum will step into it, almost without exception. Part of trusting God and his promises, if you are leading in anything, is stepping into really hard moments. And one of the things that's hard for David in this moment is naming his successor. We're not sure why it's hard, but he's failed to do it. And then as a result, chaos ensues. Now, the other thing we see is said that David had never said to his son Adonijah, why have you done thus and so? Did you catch that part? Do you know what that means? It means David had never said to Adonijah, don't do that. He never disciplined his son. He never stopped and said, no, you may not have that, you may not do that. He's been absent from this, and as a result of his abdication of that responsibility, chaos begins to ensue. Part of what's happening in 1 Kings chapter one is that God is saying even the best king, David, has many failures and flaws because there is no earthly king that can be for you what I must be for you. I'm the only true king. You with me? All right, so let's go to the next part of the story then. Just a few verses later. Verses 16 through 21 of chapter one. Bathsheba, who's David's wife, she goes to David and says she bowed down and paid homage to the king. And the king said, what do you desire? She said to him, my Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. So here's what we just heard. In private, David had declared a successor, but he'd never done it in public. So Adonijah doesn't know and no one else knows. And so they're stepping in to try and take it, right? Adonijah has put a military leader around him and a, and a religious leader. And so here's what happens next. Bathsheba has to motivate David to action. Verse 18, and now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. Those aren't innocent words there. What is she saying to David? You're not paying attention. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. And now, my lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord, the king, sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. 
You see what's happening? Bathsheba's going to him and she's saying, we're in danger because you're not, you're not telling the kingdom what you have declared that God's promise will be fulfilled through who? Solomon. And therefore, other people are rising up in an effort to take that place. And I am then in danger. Now, what we learn from that is Solomon is indeed God's choice to be king. He is the way the promise will be fulfilled. And Adonijah is not. Adonijah is a pretender for the throne. So now listen, Adonijah could assume that he is God's choice, and he could be, couldn't he? He is, in fact, the son of David. He is the oldest remaining son. There's some logic to him thinking, I am the one who will come to the throne. Does that make sense? There's some logic to that, but God has not chosen him. And so, friends, no matter how much it seems like, hey, this is the logical fulfillment of God's promise, sometimes God's ways are different than what we logically think they should be. In fact, God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom in such a way that quite often his ways seem illogical to us because they are not about self-exaltation. They are about humble humility. They are not about grabbing power. They are about waiting on the Lord in meekness and humility. Right? Again and again and again, we see the values of God's kingdom are different than the values of our world. And as a result, we have to think upside down when we're in Christ Jesus. Now, you can never force God's hand into keeping his promises in a specific way. And all you will do is be counterproductive. When you say, well, God, you've made this promise and therefore you must keep it to me in this way. When you assume that his promises about loving you and never being outside of his love and being his son or his daughter, when you assume they must result in a certain, certain thing coming to pass in your life and you hold to that rather than the actual promise, then what happens is you're trying to dictate to God how he keeps his love fulfillment to you. And in doing that, you actually are counterproductive because all you do is start holding on to idols, start holding on to things that you think you need rather than being open-handed before God. So that's lesson one here from chapter one is that we never force God's hand or the timing in which he will keep his promises. Now you might think, well, Trent, how can I know? How can I know if I'm doing that? And here's just a very simple thing, okay? I would say to you, keep your way according to God's word. Keep your way according to God's word. If you are obeying his word, then you can trust that there's a good chance that you are then letting him bring about the fulfillment of his promises. But where you justify disobeying that word, you can also equally trust that very likely you are trying to force some, God to bring something into your life that he has not chosen to bring into your life. We'll touch on that in just a moment because it relates to our second thing that we learn about God always keeping his promises. God always keeps his promises, but number two, we don't help God keep those promises by doing things we shouldn't. In other words, by disobeying his word. The ends never justify the means in God's kingdom when the means are unrighteous means. Does that make sense, yes? All right, I'll try and give you a concrete example of that in a moment. Here's what I want you to see from chapter two. Chapter two is a long chapter. I want you to see the beginning and the end. And this word, there's one word that tells us the whole purpose of this chapter very clearly. In the first couple verses, we find this word. This is how God established Solomon's kingdom. And then in the very last verse, the very last half of the very last verse, verse 46 of chapter two, we hear, and so Solomon's kingdom was established 
These are the bookends of the chapter. And what the author is doing is he's saying to us, I'm gonna tell you how Solomon firmed up his kingship, how he established his kingdom. And everything in the middle, do you think it's good or do you think it's bad? Almost everything in the middle is bad. Almost everything Solomon does and David does is actually not good. Now, don't worry, because God's mercy is really significant, because what's going to happen in chapter three is going to be pretty amazing. But in chapter two, let's read it together. We're going to read the first nine verses here. First nine verses, chapter two, it says this. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, here's our key word, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Okay, pause real quick. So far, so good, yeah? What's happened is David has pulled Solomon in and he said, look, in the end of chapter one, essentially, it becomes clear that Solomon's gonna be king. He gives him his mule to ride on. They declare him to be king. He surrounds him with even greater military power and um, religious leadership. And all those who are following Adonijah, including Adonijah, say, whoops, we made a mistake. Right? They beg for mercy. Solomon is declared to be king. Now David pulls him in. He says, let's have a conversation. And he says, I want you to make sure in order to establish your kingdom that you obey all God's ways. Now, here's an interesting thing. As we said, 2 Samuel chapter seven, the promise that God had made to David, it's pretty clear that it's an unconditional promise when you read it in 2 Samuel. He says, I'll discipline the son you know, who disobeys, but I will not remove the throne from your family. But here David states it as conditional. He says to Solomon, I want you to obey God so that he will bless you. So what do we make of that? We've got conditional, the way David is stating it. We've got unconditional, the way God stated it originally. And then in 1 Kings chapter nine, which we're not gonna get to today, God himself is gonna declare it to Solomon and he's gonna pro proclaim it as a conditional promise. He's gonna say, you need to keep my ways in order for me to establish your kingdom. So let, we'll get to that in just a moment, but just keep that in mind. What David is referring to is back to that promise that God had made to him, and he's giving instruction to Solomon. So far, so good. He's saying to him, hey, honor God, obey God's word. Now, really ironic. Look what he says next. Verse five. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that, was, that has been shed or had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of, on his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. You, what that means is kill him. All right, this is our godfather moment in the text. This is Luca Brazzi coming to Marlon Brando, and he's declaring to him, I can't do a Marlon Brando voice, so I won't try. But he's saying to him, I need you to take care of something for me. Now, you should ask, David, why didn't you take care of this? Verse seven, 
but deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let, him, let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there's also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. All right, so interesting little moment here, yeah? So David has just declared to Solomon, like, obey the Lord, walk in his ways. Hey, by the way, here's what I want you to do. Kill a bunch of people. David never dealt with Joab because Joab's loyalty served David well while, Joab was, while David was alive. And now that he is done, probably what's happening here is that he's recognizing that both Joab and Shimei, who had cursed David, represented a threat to Solomon's throne. He says, you want to establish your kingdom? Kill these guys. They're a threat to you. Shimei, God had, David had promised, I won't kill you. And so Solomon, he says, you know what? I told him I wouldn't kill him, but let's, let's mince this out real finely. I won't kill him, you kill him. So basically what he's instructing Solomon to do is, hey, God has called you to be king after me and you're gonna establish your throne through violence and bloodshed. Does that sound like God's ways? No. So again, right here at the beginning of 1 Kings, we see the failures of even the best kings. David is gonna instruct Solomon. Is Solomon gonna follow that instruction? Yes. The rest of chapter two is about how Solomon kills Adonijah because of a request he makes about having a certain person as his wife. He's gonna then go off and kill Shimei. He's gonna say, you don't ever leave this one spot. He's gonna leave it and Solomon's gonna kill him. And he's gonna go to Joab and he's gonna kill Joab. He's going to kill all of these people and he's gonna establish his throne in a way that he do, God does not need him to do these things to establish his throne. So here's, why I say the, here's what I say the lesson of chapter two is. When God has made us a promise, and we're walking in the fulfillment of that promise, in his call upon our lives, it is never right for us to do things that we shouldn't do in order to bring about the establishment of that promise. That's what Solomon is trying to do. And so the lesson of chapter two is very clearly, this whole chapter is an indictment of Solomon. One of the themes that we're gonna see, and I'll just summarize it for you, is that both this chapter, we see David's failure, right? His absenteeism as a father and as a leader. Then we see Solomon's failure because he's willing to do things he shouldn't do to establish his kingdom. Then at the very beginning of chapter three, which is one of the richest chapters, it's the pinnacle of Solomon's life, really. It's the moment where God comes to him and says, ask anything you want of me and I'll give it to you. And Solomon rightly asks for, anybody know? Wisdom. God gives him wisdom. But do you know what happens in chapter three, verse one, right before God comes to him and says, I'll give you whatever you want? Just a little throwaway verse. Seems like a throwaway verse. What we hear is Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter. It's the seeds of unrighteousness, just the small seeds of unrighteousness that are being sown. The kings of Israel told never marry foreign wives. And Solomon immediately begins to marry a foreign wife because it's politically expedient for him to do so. And when he does so, what we're gonna find out at the end, that's the seed of unrighteousness that's sown that grows full bloom into his own destruction. It leads him away from the Lord. That's the first little 
little nugget. And then in chapter four, there's another really, again, there are these little seeds throughout these chapters that we see that even though God is merciful and he's raising up Solomon and he's even gonna bless him in some really significant ways, in chapter four, we get this little moment, verse 26 and verse 28, we're told that Solomon acquired many horses for himself. That seems like no big deal, right? He's a king. Of course, he's gonna have lots of horses. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when God had said, here's what the kings of Israel should do and shouldn't do, one of the first things he says is, the kings of Israel shall not acquire many horses for themselves. And when you read 1 Kings, what you're supposed to read in chapter four is, it's like, it was like you were reading it all together, yes? And when you get to that point in the story, you're supposed to go, it's like, oh no, uh-oh. I remember Deuteronomy 17 said, don't do that. And now I'm told Solomon was doing it. So there are these little seeds of unrighteousness that are sown. And friends, one of the lessons that we are to learn is that when those seeds of unrighteousness are sown, they, in moments of great triumph, if we're sowing seeds of unrighteousness and doing things we shouldn't do, and God still in his mercy continues to bless us, know for sure that the seeds of unrighteousness sown will produce a harvest of unrighteousness, which will be our undoing. You cannot sow seeds of unrighteousness and have them not come to fruition. And then God's discipline comes as a result. Now, let's go back to that conditional, unconditional, all right? So here's what we need to see, is that Solomon and David both understand some part of this promise to be, un, to be uh, conditional upon their obedience, that they will be on the throne if they obey. And that's true. Here's the way both of these things are true. Number one is that every son of David who comes to the throne of Judah will rise and fall based upon their obedience, Good kings will thrive and unrighteous kings will not. So that each of them is brought to the throne or taken off the throne based upon the condition of their obedience. So the promise is fulfilled in a conditional way. And yet, through all of that, there is still an unconditional promise of God to never have a son of David removed from the throne. So for each king, it's conditional. But in the grand scheme, it's unconditional because there is one whom God will send to fulfill that promise who will reign forever on the throne. And because God has declared it to David, it will come to pass. And we'll see in a moment that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. All right, now, let's go to the third thing. So again, first thing that we see is that, we, that God doesn't ask us how to fulfill his promises. We don't tell him how to do that. The second thing is that he doesn't need us to do things we shouldn't do in order to bring about the fulfillment of those promises. And that's chapters one and two. Chapter three and four. God gives us what we need to walk in his promises. So when God makes promises to us in Christ Jesus, there are then realities that begin to become part of our life, a calling upon our life to walk in. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, says that he has prepared in advance good works for us to do. Do we know this text, yes? So when you came to him, you became his son, you became his daughter, you became the recipient of his grace and his mercy and his love and all those things, all those promises that you will never be apart from, that you will be justified, that you'll be sanctified all those promises are true and good and you will have them. And one of the results of those is a calling upon your life. He's called you to your vocation. He's called you to walk with him. He's called you to certain work in ministry to establish his kingdom. Whatever that calling is, he will provide for you what you need to walk in it. And you can be confident of that so that you can put the full weight of your trust upon all those promises and not think that you have to make it happen in your own strength. Here's what happens next. 
And I'm going to summarize it for you because it would be a longer read. Pinnacle moment of Solomon's life. God comes to him. Solomon does not go to God. God comes to him in chapter three. Right after he's married, married Pharaoh's daughter. Good decision or bad decision? Bad decision, all right? Right after that, verse three says, Solomon loved the Lord. Isn't that gracious of God? Right after his sin and what is foolishness and error, God still says, I see a heart that loves me. And he points it out in his word. Man, I'm so thankful for that because how many of you feel like you have a divided heart a lot of the time? He's like, I love the Lord, but man, I also have these real frailties in me. So praise God that his mercy is such that he would actually highlight that you love him, that Solomon loves him. He points that out. Then he shows up to Solomon in a vision. And he says, Solomon, ask me for whatever you want. And Solomon rightly and wisely asks for wisdom. He says, it's this beautiful phrase. He says, I'm, I'm just like a young child, right? Now he's had his own son, so he's not a child. He's a grown man. He says, I am like a young child. And this calling to rule over your people, it's too great for anyone. There's no one who has the ability to lead such a great and massive group of people. In other words, this kingdom is so complex that you want me to rule over. I need wisdom. Give me wisdom. And God is pleased with that. And he says, because you've asked for that, I'll not only give you wisdom, I'll give you great wealth. I'll give you authority. I'm going to bless you. But the main answer to that prayer is I'm going to give you the wisdom that you need. And then here's what happens. Right after that pinnacle moment in Solomon's life where God pours wisdom out upon him, the scripture is very intentional. And then the second half of chapter three tells us this story to demonstrate how much wisdom Solomon has. It's a very famous story about two women who come to Solomon, both claiming that this baby belongs to them. Have we heard this story? They both say, it's mine. The other one says, it's mine. And Solomon, in a way, in the way you read the text, you're supposed to think, man, there's no way I could figure that out. And Solomon, in his wisdom, figures out a way to reveal who the true mother is. And in doing so, what the scripture is pointing out is, see, God said he would give wisdom, and he gave wisdom. Wisdom beyond what anyone else had. And then in chapter four, Solomon does, it's sort of like, it's not as exciting of a story as the bring me the sword and we'll cut the baby in two story, right? That's real, that's like the whoa story. And then, as if to say, and wisdom matters in the mundane too. Then we, in chapter four, we get this whole description of Solomon and the rulers that he appoints to help him rule over his kingdom. Because Solomon is wise enough to know a kingdom this broad and diverse and expansive needs right leadership. And so he establishes leaders and governors. And he says, you're going to do this and you're going to do that and you're going to do that. And what the text is trying to point out for us is this is how wise Solomon is. God promised to make him wise and he did make him wise, both in the mundane ruling and administering of a kingdom and in the really mysterious sort of circumstance of discerning in this between these two moms. You with me? Does that make sense? That's what these passages are about in chapter three and in chapter four. And from them, I hope you can see very clearly the thing that we learn is that when God, like in Solomon's case, puts him on the throne, he gives Solomon what he needs in spite of all his failings. I hope you see that. We've just gotten through chapter one and two and the beginning of chapter three, and all of them are really intended to highlight failings. None of them are positive. And then the very next thing God does is give greater wisdom to Solomon than any human has ever had because God is merciful. 
and God is willing to give you what you need. Here's what you can learn from that. In spite of your failings, God will give you what you need to live in the calling that he's placed upon your life. Isn't that good to know? Man, praise God for that. You don't have to be afraid. You can step out in faith to do the things that God has called you to do. Do you know this? You are never, ever more safe than when you risk things to fulfill God's call upon your life. You are far less safe when you resist the call of God. When you shrink back in fear, you are far more in danger than when you say, I'll risk it all to walk in God's calling. You need to know that. It all stems from believing that God never, never fails to fulfill his promises. If you know that, everything else will flow from it. If you really truly believe that you can put the full weight of your life and every choice you make and every word you speak and the way you think about your money, I can put it all on the promises God has made to me and make every decision based out of those, you're in the safest place you could possibly ever be. Walk in it and then trust that he'll give you, just like he gives Solomon wisdom, he'll give you endurance, perseverance, wisdom, joy, peace, discernment, hope. He'll give you everything that you need to walk in the thing he has called you to do. Now, let's turn to that idea of how these promises get fulfilled. Because if we just stopped, if we read these first four chapters and all we did was say, wow, there's some great morals to learn here, right? Like, hey, don't be absentee as a leader. Or there's some great lessons to learn about. Man, God will grant wisdom. Or hey, I don't need to sort of do unrighteous things in order to sort of get God's purposes going forward. And those are, those are great. Those are good lessons. But we've missed the point if we stop there. Because the point of all this is the promise, 2 Samuel chapter seven. And that promise is fulfilled to David and to us through Jesus. He is the great fulfillment of every promise God has ever made. Do you know why you can depend upon God's promises? Because he sent Jesus. And in sending him now, there is one at the right hand of God who says to God, interceding on our behalf, God, keep your promises to your people. And when he says it, he's the only one worthy to say to God, God, do this. And for God to look and reflect upon him and say, you are worthy of the request you've made. Therefore, I will say yes to that. When the son asks the father to do something, he is asking in perfect righteousness in a way that you and I cannot. So that when we come to God through Christ, his promises are fulfilled because of Christ's righteousness, not mine. That should get a bigger response. Sometimes I just gotta tell y'all how you gotta respond. <laughs> he is righteous and he goes before the father for you. Praise God. Romans chapter eight. He is at the right hand of the father interceding with him for us. Now listen, let me show you how Jesus fulfills the promise to David. And then let me show you how he fulfills it to us. All right. So in the scriptures, we see this idea that he said, there's gonna be one who's gonna reign on your throne forever. So we know it can't, be a it can't just be a purely human king because no one can reign on a throne forever if they die. 
But Jesus himself lives forever as the resurrected one, and so he becomes the fulfillment of this promise. In Revelation chapter 19, we are told that when Jesus returns, there will be written on him in his robe dipped in blood, riding on a war horse with a sword proceeding from his mouth, a name written on him, and do you know what that name is? King of kings and Lord of lords. What the scripture is saying to us is that king who's gonna reign forever, the one who's over all the other kings, that's him. He's the one. And then as if to say, hey, in case you missed that, two chapters later, three chapters later, in chapter 22, last chapter of the Bible, after declaring he's gonna come, he's gonna establish the new heavens and the new earth, and he's the alpha and the omega, and in him there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more tears, and the presence of God will be with us and among us, and we will need no longer sun or moon or stars because he is with us and he is the light. And we will, we will dwell forever in his presence. Listen to what he takes time to say. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus, talking about himself, says, I am the root and the descendant of David. Now that root of David is coming from Isaiah. When we studied the book of Isaiah, we saw it there. He's saying, I'm the root of David. In other words, I am David's source, and I am also his descendant. How can you say both those things unless you are God? I am the one who is his root from which he comes, and I am also his descendant. So what he's saying there at the very end of the scriptures is, remember that promise back in 2 Samuel chapter 7? that David would have a son, a descendant who was always on the throne, that's me. I'm the fulfillment of this promise. It's not Solomon, it's not Asa, it's not Josiah, it's not Rehoboam, it's not any of these kings that we're gonna see. I am the fulfillment of God's promise to David. I am the root and the descendant of David. Now here's the other thing that we see. Unlike Adonijah, who raises and exalts himself to the throne, Jesus did not exalt himself to the throne, but lowered himself into suffering and humility in obedience to the Father. As the incarnate second person of the Trinity, Jesus lowered himself rather than raised himself, and because of it, God has exalted him above all names. God has exalted the name of Jesus. He has been brought to the throne by the Father. He is not a pretender to the throne. He is the rightful heir of the throne, yes? And not only that, not only is he the fulfillment of the promise to David in a way that Adonijah is not, he is also a king who will never need a successor because he reigns on the throne forever. There will never be a day where Jesus goes, my reign is done, and now I'm gonna step aside and all the chaos of succession of a kingdom is now gonna come about because my reign is over. I am going the way of man, as David says, and my days are done. That will never be true of Jesus. He will reign on the throne forever and ever and ever. There will be no end to his kingdom. And in his ruling, in his kingdom, unlike David, he will never be absentee in the exercise of his power. He will never have a moment where reigning over you, he goes, I don't know what's going on in your life. I have no clue what to do. I don't even care. He is not that way. He is not absentee in the exercise of his power. He is the king who reigns forever, needs no successor, and knows how to execute the, the perfection of his kingdom at all times in your life and in the world. Never doubt it. Never doubt it. He is the fulfillment of every one of God's promises to David. And now, listen to us. Let me share this with you. And this is where the rubber really meets the road and then we're gonna, gonna sing together. 
He's not just the fulfillment of that second Samuel seven promise for David. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises for all of time to all of his people. I mean, really, hold on. That sounds like something that you just say, but I need you to hear that. Every promise that God has ever made, Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise to all people who are his across all of time. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in him. What that means is, the reason you and I can know that God will keep every promise that he's made to us is because he sent his son into the world. And he is the fulfillment of those promises to us. So if he's promised it, he will keep it. How do I know? He sent his son into the world and he is the evidence that God keeps his promises. Not only that, he is the fulfillment of those promises to us. Now, let's use just as an example. I'm so excited because I didn't even get to this in the first service. You're getting a better sermon. All right. <laughs> let's just take his example. He gave wisdom to Solomon. So let's use wisdom as our example of how God keeps his promises. All right. There are two ways that God says, here, let me make a promise to you. If you need wisdom, I'll give it to you. Do you know what James chapter one, verse five says? It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So the first way that God keeps a promise like this is he says, hey, because I have sent Jesus into the world, now you have access to me through him so that if you need wisdom, you can come to me. How, why can we come to him? Who gives us access? Jesus. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of God that we can get wisdom when we need it. Because if he weren't there, we couldn't get to God. We could not go to the throne of grace and say, my great high priest has argued for me and shed his blood for me. Therefore, I can come to you and it's a throne of grace rather than a throne of wrath. And so now I will come and he's saying, you want the fulfillment of the promise of wisdom? Jesus gives you access to me who possesses all wisdom and I will give you what you need. Listen, James 1, is it a promise? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, when you need wisdom, do you ask God every time? God never gets tired of you coming and asking him for what he's already promised he will give you. Keep going to him. You can't exhaust his generosity. You will never have a day where you say, I don't know what to do. I'm gonna go to God. And he's gonna, you know what? Like, you've asked me 10 times today already. I've really had enough. Figure it out. He's not gonna do that because he's already promised. And he sent Jesus and he said, now you can come to me and you can ask me. So do that and he will give it to you. Now here's the second way Jesus fulfills that promise of giving us wisdom. Not only that, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24 says that Jesus is the very wisdom of God. It's talking about the foolishness of the cross to those who are perishing. It says, look, to those who don't believe, the cross sounds like total foolishness. That we would say God himself died. That's foolishness, right? And Paul's response to that is to say, look, I get that that's the way it is to the world, but to those of us who believe and are being saved, it is the wisdom of God, the cross of Jesus, he himself, and then his activity on the cross, is the very wisdom of God and the power of God. So rather than it being weakness and foolishness, it's wisdom and it's power. Do you know what that means? 
in Christ, whom we have, we now have the very head fountain waters of wisdom. So in him, we have the perfect demonstration of wisdom. He lives and resides in you. And now there's a foundation of wisdom that you can operate in. Not only can you call upon God because of Christ, you can also draw on the person of Christ that you know and derive from his life, alive in you through his spirit, the very nature of what it means to be wise. In other words, he's planted wisdom in you and giving you the opportunity to call out for wisdom to him. Both those things are present because Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise for wisdom for what you will need. Does that make sense? Are you as astounded as I am by that? That's who he is. Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise God has made. He's king forever, reigning and ruling, and he is everything you need. Now go back to what we said at the beginning. The whole point of these four chapters is that you and I would know that God keeps his promises. And as a result of that, that we would step out and put the full weight of our lives upon those promises. Trust him. Go where he says to go. Do what he says to do. Give when he says give. Pour yourself out. Pour yourself out. Pour yourself out for the person of Christ and the work of his kingdom, and he will sustain you and strengthen you. Trust him. Don't take shortcuts. Don't take shortcuts. He'll bring to fulfillment every promise he has made without fail. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for your word. We thank you for your servants, men like David and Solomon, how you demonstrated both through their weakness and their strengths, your glory and goodness. We are equally flawed. And so we ask you, our king, to lead us and to guide us and to help us to yield to you We pray that you've been pleased with the exposition of your word this morning and that now we would yield to that word and walk underneath its authority and in its power through the spirit. Always, Lord, what we wanna do is hear your word and then we wanna respond with praise. We wanna respond with praise. So would you receive the praises of your people now? In Jesus' name we pray.